Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to Branching Out, an upbeat, friend-building, Christian-uniting ministry. We discuss current issues in our Christian faith, chat about our lives, do a devotional, and offer prayers and praise that you share with us. Never be alone. Join us. You can reach us at our website, which is branchliving.com, through Facebook at Branch Living, and there we have an international community, and it would be a privilege to have you join us. There you can comment, post photos, prayer requests, praise reports, so do join us on Facebook at Branch Living. You can also email your prayer requests and your praise reports to me at lisa at branchliving.com. We try to podcast two to three times each week. Uh, We begin a a bit about the day, we share a prayer, and we open our time together. The heart of our podcast is our Branch Living message, and we chat about issues in our lives. We have a brief devotion written by one of the Christian greats, and then we end with comments, prayers, and praise that you send us. So join us and spread the word. We love to hear from you. And now let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time away together this time just to chat as a Christian family, uh, this time to learn a a little bit and to pray for each other. We thank you in the midst of all the chaos of the world that you do give us these moments of respite, these times away where we can be together and reflect on you, reflect on your word, and reflect on your ways. We praise you and thank you in your name. Amen. Uh, So today I'm going to uh, talk about habits and the habit I'm going to focus on today is the habit of hope because certainly in this world today we all need hope and hope is often elusive. Hope is often hard to find but um, in my search for exactly uh, what I should say on hope today I did find a sermon that was written by a minister and he was a London minister and he gave this uh, just before or just at the early stages of World War II. So I love to read and research sermons from decades and even centuries ago. There are several reasons that I've developed a fondness for sermons from a long time ago. First, they remind me of how little has changed in terms of people, the struggles they face, and the world the world could have looked quite different at that time with our new technologies and our methods of transportation and all of our conveniences. But deep down, the struggles that we have are the same. Finding love, hearing God, fighting loneliness, needing resources, seeking hope, those are just a few of the things that we share in common with people from long ago. Second, I find that sermons are not only longer, but they are more dense and they're often much richer in content. They are just chucked full of scripture, advice, illustrations, and points to ponder. Unlike today's popular 15-minute sermons centered on the three points, a joke, one or two stories, a takeaway, sermons long ago provided food for discussion among the congregants in the days before television even existed. They were culture building, they were entertaining, they provided guidance, and they provided hope. I wanted to share the greater portion of a sermon I found particularly meaningful in light of the pandemic, the loss of jobs, and just the general kind of gloominess uh, that has fallen across our globe. 
The sermon that I found is called When Hope is Dead, Hope On. And the author is W.E. Sangster. He was a Methodist minister in London during World War II. The message was first preached during a particularly difficult time for the British people. And according to preaching.com, his sermons were regularly halted by bombings in the city. Sometimes he preached through them, telling the hearers, those of a nervous disposition may leave now. During the five years of the German bombings, Sangster virtually lived in the great bomb shelter below his church building. He died in 1960, and I'm going to now read most of the sermon. I didn't read it all. It's all in my blog, if you would go there. Um, but I took a little bit out because it was quite lengthy. But I have, um, I'm going to read most of the sermon that he preached that was entitled, When Hope is Dead, Hope On. Many people think of hope as a poor, precarious thing, an illusion of vanity, a disease of the mind. The cynic has said, he who lives on hope will die starving. Crowley said, hope is the most hopeless thing of all. The soldier is apt to turn, to bright, turn bright promises aside with a despondent question, what hopes? A distinguished German philosopher once looked upon hope as the bait by which nature gets her hook in our nose and makes it serve her interests, though they may not be her own. That is the common assessment of hope in the world, a poor, vain, deceptive thing. But hope is not thought of in these terms in the New Testament. Paul makes faith, hope, and love the cardinal virtues of Christendom. And now abideth faith, hope, and love. He speaks also of the patience of hope and the hope that maketh not ashamed. All through the New Testament, hope is spoken of in that same high way. The author of the epistle of Hebrews burst out in that daring paradox, a hope both sure and steadfast. Now, how did this sharp contrast arise? An illusion, a steadfast reality, a dream, a fact, a disease of the mind, a cardinal virtue. Hope cannot be both. Is the world right? Or is the New Testament correct? Is it a bit of folly or is it precious beyond price? What is the solution of this dilemma? The answer is not difficult. They are talking about different things. There is a higher and a lower hope. There is a genuine quality and a counterfeit. There is the real article and a substitute. There is gold and there is guilt. Let us look at each of them in their turn. I think you will recognize the lower hope more easily if I employ its usual name. It's commonly called optimism. Optimism is much praised. People love to boast that they are optimists and they speak as though this quality conferred distinction on them. Sir Thomas Lipton said, I am the world's greatest optimist. I am proud of this distinction. There is something buoyant and healthy in being an optimist. It is because of my, op because of my optimism that I have gone through life sailing. I am always in good humor and 
the Dr. Optimism is the finest chap in any city or country. Just try a course of his treatment, it works wonders, and this doctor charges no fees. Nor should we deny the value of optimism. It is not full cream, but there is something to be said for skimmed milk. If the choice were pressed upon us, most of us would, be perf would prefer to live with an optimist than with a pessimist. A friend of mine has said it out this way. The pessimist says it will rain this afternoon. The optimist says there's a rift in the clouds and he puts on his Macintosh and goes out. The pessimist says, I suppose there's no milk in that jug. The optimist says, pass the cream, please. The pessimist says, the country is bound to lose this war. And the optimist says, the outlook is dark, but we shall win through. Of course, optimism is better than pessimism. Doctors know that. One doctor at Cambridge University addressing medical students some time ago sought to remind them that there are precious tonics not easily examined by biochemical analysis and he concluded this striking address by saying that hope is one of the best tonics. Yes, all of this concerns the lower hope and when everything has been said in its favor, it is a poor counterfeit for the real thing. It flourishes most where there is no depth of earth and it soon withers away. It has no necessary connection with religion. If a doctor knows, if, if every doctor knows that optimism is, as the doctor had said, a good tonic to the body, then every doctor also knows an optimist is constantly in, the, in pursuit of consumption. The disease may be making its last rapid moves to a tragic end, but normally, the patient seems blissfully unaware of it. Keen as the people in hospitals normally and naturally are to get home, their cheerfulness is proverbial. I have been visiting such patients in all parts of the country for years and have been impressed again and again by the hopefulness they display. But many of them are sick unto death, and optimism alone cannot save them. Nor is it less pathetic when an optimist when the optimism is displayed by all of the relatives. It is all right, said the cheerful fellow to me one day when I had been visiting his wife who was gravely ill. She is bound to get better. I am an optimist, you know. I always look on the bright side of things. But I buried his wife before the week was out. Of course, we appreciate optimism and willingly admit its simple service to the community but it has been immoderately praised and fully explains the world's cynicism concerning hope. Boisterous confidence, which has no solid foundation, looks pitifully ludicrous when crushing disappointment comes and deepens the contempt in which it is widely held by the disillusioned. Looking at the bright side of things may seem bold and brave, but it involves also, as it, is often, as it often does, a foolish neglect of facts which point the other way. It only adds to the bitterness of the ultimate failure. A friend of mine who used to be a legal professor told me he often wound up, terminated as failure or bankruptcy, the business of people who would persist in looking on the bright side of their accounts. How different all of this is from New Testament hope. 
It is as different as the gambler's dice from the proved results of accurate research. We go forward into this dark period of our nation's life, and again, he's writing this during World War II, not inflated with foolish optimism, which seems to give buoyancy to those who do not know Christ, but with a quiet, unquenchable hope drawn from the deep source of our faith. The language which comes easy to optimists we cannot use, confident boasting of a swift, not too costly victory, and wishful anticipation of speedy revolution in enemy lands are not the grounds of hope. It is more deeply based than either of these. It is first based on the indestructibility of truth. So he's talking about New Testament hope now. And he says the first thing it is based on is the indestructibility of truth. Some people would have us believe that truth is a fragile thing, the first casualty in any war. None would deny we are living in an age when scant respect has been paid to it and propaganda put forward as something rather better. Indeed, there have been times when words have almost ceased to have meaning. Aggression has masqueraded as protection. Wanton and wicked invasion has been described as though it were a pitying and sacrificial act of succor. Appeasement has been called weakness, and confederation aiming at peace has been regarded as a team of gangsters bent on encirclement. But it only seems so. Truth is mighty. It does not achieve its victories by any lightning war. The lie wins all engagements early, and sometimes it seems to be in secure possession of the field. Truth may even be nailed to a cross and taken down, a poor bleeding clod to be hidden away, sealed by a great stone. But it rises again. The life principle in it cannot be killed. Somehow it partakes of the life of God therefore of God's eternity. Ultimately, its triumph is sure. So he goes on then to say, Albert Schweitzer, like most thoughtful men, disliked, dislikes to be asked whether he is an optimist or a pessimist, finding the question essentially shallow. He admits that only at quite rare moments has he felt really glad to be alive, that he is burdened with a sense of the world's suffering and believes that, by, renunciating, right, by renunciation of thinking, mankind is delivering itself into spiritual and material misery. One thing, however, keeps hope alive in him, he says, is the belief in truth. One belief in my childhood I have preserved with certainty and that I can never lose it is belief in truth. I am confident that the spirit generated by truth is stronger than the force of circumstances. Therefore, I do not believe that mankind will have to tread the road of ruin right to the end. Then that is the first great ground of our hope. Again, the indestructibility of truth. In all our anxiety these days, lest we become nationally self-righteous, none need hesitate to offer the prayer, God defend the truth. The second part of our hope, our confident hope, is that God is on the throne. 
Many people, most of whom live normal lives in neglect of God, complain times of national stress that he never seems to do anything. They set out the enormity of our enemies, touch with a light hand or entirely ignore our own national sins, and then inquire why God does not intervene. The problem is an old one. It puzzled the psalmist. It perplexed the prophets. It baffled poor Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he stood by, bloody and ineffectual, in the gleam of the lanterns and watched them march his betrayed master away, something came right bursting out of his mighty heart. He knew that it was by devilry, every bit of it. But why did he, Jesus, the Messiah of God, suffer it? Surely the same word that cured the leper, gave sight to the blind, and summoned the dead to life, could blast these evil men for their wickedness. Yet he allowed them to lead him away, and of his own will bowed his meek head to the mortal pain. As Peter stumbled into the darkness, that was the question which hammered his reeling brain. Why? 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 Let this be plainly said again, however elementary it must seem to those who deeply think on the things of God. He does not work our way. His might finds fitting expression, not in the power to wound, but in the power to woo. His power is not coercion, but constraint. Never does he violate the personality that he has made. With infinite patience, he seeks to win the wayward and the wicked by all the dear inducements of love. And our hard task is this, to have patience with the patience of God. When we remember our own stubborn willfulness and resistance to his pleadings, and for how long our prayers were compact of just personal petitions, and how imperious we seem to his call. When we remember his own patience with us through all the years, when we were proud and repulsive in sin, it should not be too hard for us to have patience with the patience of God. Let us accept this fact, however difficult, even impossible, we may judge it be for ourselves, God does not work our way. The cross symbolizes both his power and his wisdom. He meets all of the massive hatred of wicked men with bleeding love. And in the hour of their triumph, his only reply is prayer. But he is still on the throne. He is, an uncomprom he is uncompromising about sin and only blind ignorance can interpret his restraint as weakness or his indifference to moral worth. The eternal God will vindicate the unalterable distinctions of right and wrong. The world can only work his way. Crowns and thorns may perish. Kingdoms rise and wane. Already one nation, again, this is in World War II, has been entirely engulfed in the bloody tide of this worldwide war. Others may share the fate, our own even, but justice and righteousness shall not vanish from the earth. Out of the chaos of these times 
and by bitter agony of this doubly afflicted generation, the will of God will ultimately be done on earth as it is in heaven. He will never leave us nor forsake us as the scripture promises. The cross is the pledge of that. In those moments of unmeasurable horror, when we fear that even God's patience will be exhausted with our own wicked race, and all of the windows of heaven close from within against the scenes of the earth, let us repair again to Calvary. Here is the ground of unquenchable hope. He will never forsake the world of his incarnation and sacrificial death. God is on the throne. Truth is indestructible. When the shallow hopes of the world and all of its false messiahs are all dead, hope on in God. And what a powerful message that is today. And um, since I have read this and I wanted to share it with you, I've really taken away the message that, um, that you know, God is on the throne and truth is indestructible and hope is built on those two facts, that truth will win because truth is part of God and God is the master of the universe and God will win. And so uh, he is just a patient God. And I love it, I love it the way um, that the minister says that we have to learn to have patience with a patient God who is constantly wooing those to him who he wants to bring home. And so it seems like a long time sometimes before what we want to have happens. And sometimes it doesn't in our lifetime. But we have to learn to have patience with a patient God. Um, just beautiful sermon. And again, I have a copy of it on my uh, blog. If you wanted to actually go through and read it, I have the, the whole sermon in its entirety. So I was going to do a couple of more readings with you today, but I think in light of the time, I'm going to jump to the prayers uh, because we had a number of them come in this time. And about 20% of the people who listen to the podcast are in Nigeria. And so I think that the uh, last talk that we had together about the persecuted church really kind of um, brought them forward with a lot of prayer requests. So I'm going to review those with you now, and then we will um, end with prayer. So Maribel asked that God will let me see my family this year. Lillian wrote in, I need a helper from above. Uh, Loveland wrote in, I need money. Another person who was anonymous wrote in, I need money. Another woman named Lillian with one L this time wrote, I need a financial breakthrough. So lots of requests for uh, money. Another gentleman wrote, I need good work. Another request for, I need money. And then a woman named Linda wrote, my children are all graduated and none is working. I want my first son to be committed to Christ, get a good wife, and settle down. So that is her prayer uh, that she asks us to join her in today. And then um, Odu asks for prayer for my son Felix. And then we had several different prayer requests for jobs. Uh, so we will uh, list all of those and we just have, and we're going to lift those up to um, God in our prayer. And so I just join with me again, Heavenly Father, thank you for this message of hope today. 
Thank you for the wonderful insight that hope is our firm and that the firmness of our hope comes from indestructible truth and the fact that God is on his throne and that nothing can disturb either of those things. And so we need to be patient with a very patient God as he seeks to woo those to him who he wants to bring into the kingdom. So Lord, help us be mindful of that as we start to lose hope, as we start to lose patience, and as we start to lose faith in truth. We lift up all the prayer requests that I just shared earlier. Particularly, we lift up the country of Nigeria and the persecuted church, but we lift up everybody in this world and help us endure and get through this pandemic, come to the other side, and please, Father, bring about revival. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me today for that sermon. Uh, what a meaty, very dense sermon. Again, again it is on branchliving.com. And if you just scroll down the page, you'll see the Sermon on Hope, and you can print it from there. And um, do stay in touch. Do send in your prayer requests. Remember that we do have a Bible study on Tuesdays, 7 Central. You can email me at lisa at branchliving.com if you'd like to join us. Until we get together again, stay close to God, stay in touch, and I will chat with you again soon. Thank you.